You are now listening to the Do Something Good Today podcast brought to you by Everybody's Juice, a podcast reminding you to do something good today for your body, mind, or soul. We're back with another episode of the Do Something Good Today podcast brought to you by Everybody's Juice. Uh, We have a very, very special guest today, someone who I'm uh, hugely fond of. Uh, Ms. Karen Washington, who is a farmer, an activist for social justice, and a food advocate. Karen also lives in the Bronx, where she's been growing food for decades and decades um, in abandoned lots and community gardens. Um, also in 2010, Karen co-founded Black Urban Growers, right? Karen, I want to make sure I got that right. Bugs, you got it right. Bugs, okay. Bugs, which is an organization for supporting growers in both the urban and rural settings. Karen, it is honestly a pleasure to speak with you today, and I'm honored that you agreed to do the show today. So let's get right into it. I mean, you've been doing this work of farming and advocating for a while now. How did your relationship with food start? Well, my relationship to food was that it tastes good because my mom was a good cook. <laughs> but I never questioned question where my food came from, who grew it, if it was sprayed with pesticides or insecticides. You know, my we had three meals a day and food was, it was, it was an afterthought. Um, so it wasn't until, you know, um, I moved to the Bronx and I had a backyard. I decided to grow some food. I hadn't. I don't have a green thumb at that time. So, uh, three things I wanted to grow. Of course, I wanted to grow collard greens. I grow collards. Staple. <laughs> Without a doubt, ancestors. Um, a tomato and an eggplant. And it was a tomato that changed my world because my first of all, I hated tomatoes. They were pink, and they were in the grocery store. It came three in a pack. But when I grew the tomato, I was surprised that it grew on a vine, y'all. It grew on a vine, and it was red. And so when I bit into it, it just changed my world, and I wanted to grow everything. Um, so that's how I really got started in growing food in 1985. But in 1988, there was an empty lot, and in uh, the city at that time had over 15,000 vacant lots, mostly in low-income neighborhoods mm-hmm. and neighborhoods of color. And I started uh, my journey there, 1988. An abandoned lot. So you, I've been studying and researching you, and you stated that you like hate the word food desert. Why does that word kind of grind your gears? Because all my friends, I got friends in Detroit, Baltimore, Philly, Oakland, and we live in the hood, and and no one. What is like? We live in a desert, you know. We're looking around and we see the food that we have—the junk food, the fast food, you know, the Dollar Generals. All that. we see the food we got. So how are you gonna say it's a desert? Say what it is. It's hunger and poverty. And again, it's always outsiders that label who we are. You know, they, they label who we are without even asking, does this apply to you? So all of a sudden it's like, what? People, you know, in urban settings that don't have grocery stores or don't have access to fresh food, someone labeled us as food deserts. And so I said, you know what, forget that. It's food apartheid. And everybody started like, what food apartheid? And I said that because I wanted people to really peel back the food system. It doesn't take a rocket science to know where the crappy food goes. The crappy food goes into low-income neighborhoods. The fresh, organic 
who goes into high-end communities, namely white. And so let's call it what it is. And so I wanted people to start having those conversations because you're not having that conversation when you say food deserts. You're looking on a map and you're looking at the pockets on a map and that really looking behind that map, there are people, there are people who deserve fresh local food like everybody else. And you know, something that kind of bothers me so much is how the media and the masses always stating how black and brown people are you know always at high risk for diseases such as like diabetes and heart disease and, and other chronic diseases as well um but if you look you know at how systematically the food infrastructure has been set up throughout america it's not a coincidence it's not like you know we chose to not eat a healthy diet i don't think anyone wants you know any amputations or any limitations on how they live their life but there's been so much put in place to paint the picture as if we're just unhealthy people. When in reality, history shows that the African diet is largely a vegetarian diet. There wasn't a lot of animal protein in, in, in Africa. That wasn't something that they really consumed. I, I believe that, and history shows that the transatlantic slave trade played a huge part in not only you know, compromising their diets, but also a new wave of dietary related diseases as well. Without a doubt, you know what, you know, I'm so glad you brought it up because a lot of us have lost our history. Our history about who we are is not in a textbook. It's not in school. You're not going to learn. What you're going to learn is um, African people coming to this new world and they're enslaved and they're working on labor and it's like, <laughs> folks, the reason why we were brought here was because of knowledge of agriculture. Just think. Okay, let me just work. I want you all to think, the audience to think. When we came to the New World on the Low South, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, that climate was swampy, hot, a lot of rain, increased malaria. That's how the rest of the South, folks. We had to, because they knew that we could work in that type of climate. I hear an echo. Malaria didn't, you know, malaria did not uh, affect us. And so what we brought, the seeds in our hair, in other dark areas, we brought the knowledge of agriculture, the rice production, the cotton production, the, the tobacco production, all came from us. Even even the when it came to cattle, that came from us. These colonists didn't know how to grow food like that. So it was us that brought that knowledge of agriculture. The food that you're eating, that came from us. Those those the staple of this country, the food came from Africa, from us. A agriculture came from us. And you know what is so, so, when I, you know, I tell people, you know, it, it blows the young people's mind because it's like, what? We didn't know about this. They told us we were slaves and stuff like that. And I told also with the wealth, the wealth of this country was built on the backs of enslaved, indigenous, and immigrant people, migrant people. And I say that because there was a point in time in history, 1864, when General Sherman met with the, the with black church members of newly freed slave and he did a 15th order which was supposed to give newly free slaves 400,000 acres of land 
Let's put that in perspective. 4,100 acres of land. President Lincoln at the time signed it. So all of a sudden, you're going to start starting to see wealth. When President Lincoln died, President Andrew Johnson saw that and said, Hell no. Took those acres away and put it back into the hands of the slave masters. And that was the beginning of our downfall. And ever since then, we have been we have been non-existent when it came to anything that came from the government, from banking, from forming our own banks, from getting loans, even the GI Bill. Can you imagine how many of us, how many of our fathers and grandfathers fought in wars to come back home and not being even have the ability to even get a GI loan? That went to whites. So they were able to come home and go into suburbs and get home. My father fought in the Korean War. He came home and we ended up in the projects. And so time and time again, there have been structures in place that has prevented us to build wealth. And if you follow the history all the way from the Emancipation Proclamation, all the way to the GI Bill, all the way to the, the New Deal, all these things that have been in place, redlining, all these things have been in place to prevent blacks from building wealth. And, and even more so to, to speak more about the farmers, I was reading somewhere where there was like the number of farmers like in, in the United States, I want to of black farmers in the United States, it was close to maybe around 800,000, I want to say like in 1920. And now there's like less than 40,000. And that was the article that I read. The article was dated in 2018. And it's just like, that's, that's a huge, a very, very steep decline and I don't think that people understand how much it goes into when black people are, when they have this land, you're trying to upkeep the land. The government are placing so many different taxes on you. So you got to keep up with the taxes. If you don't pay the taxes, your land gets snatched from you. You need to be able to afford like the right equipment to continue to produce crops at a high level. If you don't, then your crops are, you know, they're dying. They're going bad very quickly. And that puts you out of business. So it's so it's so many darts that's just being thrown at black farmers. And it's it's a lose lose. It's it's tough because the government is not trying to help them. And being a farmer is expensive, as I'm sure you, you know about that. You know how hard it is to continue to grow crops at an advanced level. And it's just tough because when you look at it, we like this is something that we started. This is something that African-Americans and more so Africans, they started, you know, growing food from the land. The land is something that we've always cherished. And now it's, it's just crazy how the tide has just turned so much now that we have little to no, you know, equity in the farming game right now. What you're saying is absolutely right. And I think a lot of it, again, we were brainwashed, you know, at a time during, especially during segregation and Jim Crow when a lot of us were, were, were forced off our land, you know, either violently or illegally forced off, off our land. And then we would thought that the best thing was to head north and Midwest because that's where the jobs were. We were leaving, you know, the Black Codes, the Jim Crows, all these segregation um, ideologies that were in place at that time that prevented Blacks from, you know, making a living so it was this great migration that happened. 
And as a result, as we moved away from the land, we lost who we are. You know, because again, the land is what makes is, is make is in our DNA. But now you're trying for me. What I'm trying, what I am seeing, is this new resurgence, especially young people that understand how important land is, how valuable land is, and then also the fact that right now we have less than one percent of farmers who are black in this country. Um, but there's hope. You know, I mean, there's hope. You know, I I, I see hope al along the way. First of all, for um, black people to understand that together we can start building wealth. As a matter of fact, we just started in New York State here, a black farmer fund. Okay. And we started a black farmer fund. This happened in 2019. We started a black farmer fund because in New York State, out of 57,000 farmers in New York State, only 139 are black. And you're asking farmers to get a piece of the pie, to get government assistance. But how can we get government assistance or even aid if we're not even recognized? And so we started this Black Farmer Fund because we felt that it was intentional for us to start thinking about financial literacy, social capital, and communal wealth. That's not talked about in our, in our circles. But yet, if you look at the concept of the susu, that's starting now. You know what I'm saying? That those ways of communal wealth where we pull our money together to uplift one another, that's the sort of language we're starting to use within our community because we're not getting any help from the local government. So, to make a long story short, we're in the process of giving out almost a million dollars to black businesses and black farmers, money that we got not from the federal government, not from the state government, not from the city government, but from supporters and, and, and foundations that believed in the fact that black lives matter, black farmers' lives matter, black business lives matter. And so now what we're trying to do with this Black Farmer Fund is get it up and running and then take what we've learned along the way and say, here, Philly, this is what we've done. Here, Detroit, this is what we've done. Here, Chicago, this is what we've done. Here, Oakland, this is what we've done. You don't have to repeat what we've done, but we're going to hand it over to you so we can start talking within our community. What does communal wealth and social capital and base building look within our community? How when we can pull our, our resources together, we can help and uplift one another. Those are languages that are not spoken in our community. It's always you're poor, you need help, sign up for welfare, sign up for public assistance, sign up for food pantries and soup kitchens. You never hear people coming to our neighborhood and said, let's talk about investment. Let's talk about repairing capital. Let's talk about entrepreneurship. Let's talk about how to build a, build, a business. And the reason why is because it's a power dynamic shift that has to happen and people with power don't want to see black and brown people with power but you know what I tell people there's three things you got to either share it you have to give it up or we're going to take it and that's going to be the new revolution can you speak more about sharecropping and how that you know just to revisit history just one more time yeah. how that really affected what we're seeing what we're going through right now as far as black farming well, the thing about with sharecropping was the fact that, okay, so, quote, unquote, slavery is abolished, right? So, you got families 
that, you know, want to hold on to the land, but in essence, the land is owned by white owners. So you're trying to say, well, you know what? Let me see if I can at least, you know, make enough money that I can own that land. But you never own the land because you're always in debt to the land owner. Even though we share crop and it's set up so that you can one day own that land, you never own that land. Because number one, if you don't know in terms of the dynamics of reading and mathematics, if you don't know how much money you're making, and then also how much is the real price versus what the white owner is going to set. So you in the fields constantly working to pay off debt that you know you're never going to pay off. You're never going to pay off. So again, it's a form of modern slavery, but with a twist is, well, you know, as long as I can work on this land and I can make a share, you know what I'm saying? I can eventually own that land and you never own that land because you're always in debt to the owner. And he's always going to raise the price of what you're going to give compared to what is on the market. So again, it's all these things that have been in place for years and even now with the incarceration you know with the with the with the incarceration the um let me just think it's the penal code you know whereby you know they had workers against black people working on 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 farms on 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 construction a lot of the roads that are that are that roads and bridges um were done by you know incarcerated black men at the time where the the um i guess whatever i want to say uh the sentence was that you got to work you know you got to work off your your sentence by working is either in a farm or you know on construction building roads so again we have been used as forced labor but forced labor in effect in effect that we never have built any wealth behind that. It's always been free labor. So, do you think that we can make this change through? Because what you're speaking about is more like community, building community and spreading it across this country. So, I guess that would be more like of a grassroots effort. So, do you think that something like that can be done just solely through grassroots? Or do you think that we need to continue to address some of these issues through uh, through a policy level, so to speak. Well, we are through reparations. Do you think that whatever? <laughs> yeah. I mean, me personally, I'm, I, I like to be optimistic, but it just seemed like we've been talking about this for so long, and it's just like you know, when is it going to happen? Because they're already speaking about, and it's crazy. Like, I'm not downplaying the Asian hate or anything like that, but they're already speaking about creating funds for Asians who are dealing with violence and hate. And it's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, let's slow down. Like, let's look at who's been in this country, who's been dealing with hate and violence and systemic racism for centuries. Let's take care of them first. But it's, but it's, it's but you know, let me tell you, tell you, it's happening, your, your, your listeners, it's happening. You know what I'm saying? Don't, don't let outside interference keep your eyes on the prize and that is to have these talks within our own community you can't worry about what other people are doing you got to focus on what needs to be done in our community and so i'm seeing a lot of black farmer funds being 
talked about. Um, a lot of people are starting to talk about leveraging that in terms of even land reparation. There are a lot of people, believe it or not, you know, that are out there that see right now black bodies are being, you know, are being killed like it seems every week. I was out there. And so there are people that are out there that want to support, you know, in terms of giving back land, especially those that those and I'm talking a majority of whites who have 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 land and have resources, their family don't want to be in those fields. And so what happens to that land when they die? And so there are ways where a lot of them want to give that land back to back into the hands of those that they know they're going to be stewards of the land. So don't be pessimistic, be optimistic, don't be reactive be proactive and so that's what we're trying to instill within our community that if things are going to change they have to come from within us it has to have our voices it has to have our control our power and not focus on what other people are getting let's focus on how we can get what we deserve how we can again instill the history of who we are as agrarian people to again bring to the forefront the racist tactics that have been used for so long to keep us out of of of, of, a, of a market a capitalistic market that has been so far extractive and exploitative so how do we change the market how do we change a system that for so long has affected us but a system that we can turn around if we use our dollars wisely if we support local communities if we talk about what base building looks like if we pull our money together to help businesses if we pull our money so that it grows an investment and that investment helps one one entity one business entity and that business entity gets on its feet and then it helps the other. Those are the conversations that we need to have and stop worrying about what other people are getting. You know, for so long, I mean, we, and, and again, that's a side thing. You know, um, what's happening to Asians is bad because, you know, we know what happens to blacks each and every day. But we have to focus on who we are and to make sure that at the end of the day, the legacy that is left is that there is some sort of wealth building there's some sort of legacy that's left for our children I mean that's I'm 67 years of age and I'm trying to build a legacy of land and a legacy of wealth to give to my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren and I think that's beautiful because I just had a conversation with a friend of mine and he's a financial advisor we were talking about just like legacy and wealth and we were saying that you know you have to be able to sacrifice and be able to know that there's a there's a 50 50 chance that you may not be alive to see that that legacy or that wealth but you have to know that you put the infrastructure in place for for it to continue to be passed down and i think that's important because i feel like right now Society that we're, that we're in right now, and, I, and it may just be in general, but a lot of people are just not comfortable with sacrificing. So when you when you speak about you know putting that coming together and, and pooling money and pooling and pulling resources and things like that, 
it's a it's a a beautiful concept and an idea that I've always been a strong proponent of. But how can we really like make this happen? Like how can we transition from idea to implementing this to like a full blown on concept? Let me tell you, I'm 67 years of age. When I got my first job, I was 23 years of age. And every time I got paid, I took part of my money and put it put it aside. I didn't think about it. I didn't think about, you know, but I thought that at that time I was a single parent with two children. I didn't have I didn't have anything at that time. Um I was raising two kids on my own. But I just saw with them a future. And I just happened to work constantly, do as much as I can. But every time I got paid, I would put, you know, money aside. Even if it was $50, something like that. And um, when I reached, and then I had a job that, I don't know if it happens now, but whatever you would put in, they would match. And so when I reached the age of 60, I said, I'm done. Let me follow my dream. And so, and I instill the same thing to my children, to my grandchildren, even on my farm, even on my farm, Rising Root. Um, I try to tell, and I also speak to young farmers and young people because farming is hard. And they'll tell me they know what I'm saying is right to put money aside. But then they say, how can they put money aside when they're working so hard to save a little? And so, I, you know what I say? You know what? Every time you break a dollar, the change, put it away, you know, practice some sort of way that you can put something aside for the next day and think about how that is going to generate to the next generation. Now, um, again, you know, I mean, it's hard to do, but to have those, com to have those conversations, even during COVID, Family, last March we start, we, we do Zoom Tuesdays and Saturdays. Mm -hmm. And so, again, starting this, a conversation, even within my family, it's like, okay, everybody, let's think about what it would take if we, everybody, every month put in $50. And that's what we did. Every, you know, we put in $50 just to get the practice of what it is. And then that money was used to help. Somebody pay their mortgage bill, or someone to pay their rent, or someone to buy. So again, to get into that frame of mind, or how when we pull our money together as family members, there's certain things that we can do. And so, and also, I applaud uh, the family members. And this was, I guess, televised last year, even though it should have been televised, should have kept it to themselves. Of this family and friends that got together and bought this land where was it i think in um either alabama or somehow they bought uh, bought a town almost and so what it is is that they bought these acres of land whereby they're going to start like a a a, a, a town a family and friend. i heard about that yeah Yes, even though right, even though they should not have announced it, you know, what I'm saying that's something that you you can't you can't announce that because people see black people trying to build a town. There's going to be rules and regulations and laws and stuff like that. So I tell people out there, if you plan on doing something like that, keep it close because all of a sudden you bring attention and you have people that don't want to see us 
with power and wealth and don't want to see us with our own town and grocery stores and stuff like that. So, you know, again, it's something to, to, to think about. You know, how do you build wealth? Save save something. Look at your legacy. Even if, even if it's not money or land. How many of us have land down south, right? I ain't going down south. I'm not going back down south. I ain't going down there. Too many bugs. I'm not going down there. But yet, that's your legacy. That's your, you like, you got to find somebody in the family going to pay the taxes. Yeah. So you got something to hand down. Have you ever considered, like, running for office, like, you know, yes, let me tell you, I have been asked time and time again, and I said no because you need somebody to keep these people accountable. You need some, you need, you can't, you got, you got to be able to keep these people accountable, and so that's why I said, heck no, you know, I'm not going to be, you know, because in this political sense, it's like chess. You do this for me, I do that for you. You do this for me. But as an outsider, I'm not beholden to anybody. But you got to be beholden to my people. You got to be beholden to my people. So, yeah, I'm an agitator. I don't care. And I'm going to stuff it down their throat. We just had a, um, we just had a hearing, a, a Senate hearing on agriculture. And again, you know, I'm bringing, well, you know, 50, you know, they're talking about all these programs for farmers and, 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 and loans and grants and this and that and opportunities. And I said to them, 57,000 farmers on 139 a block. Where, how are we going to get into that? What are y'all doing? And it's crickets. So, you know what, because I had to give my testimony, so I'm giving my testimony, and then, you know, because everybody before me, they're asking questions, so it comes to my turn, and I'm saying, okay, 57,000 farmers, 139 a block, what y'all going to do about it? Crickets. Crickets. I say, I mean, where are my, where are my questions? Miss Washington, that's why we have having a hearing, so we can address that. No, it's not, because you don't have an answer for that. You don't have it. You have let it go. No one has said anything. For me, it's dire because if it's not addressed, and I talk, if it's not addressed, I guarantee twenty years from now there'll be no black farmers, and the whole entire agricultural system will be controlled by white people. So this is why it's dear to me. And that's, I mean, that's really not good because I mean, when you look at it from just a, a systematic standpoint, I think it goes with the government. I think when 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 we think of the government, we think of the white man, so to speak. Not just every white man, but the white man and what that has stood for. And when you look at how people are even having distrust with like the vaccine and government, not government approved, but it's associated with the government. And so people are going to, when you just said that, that kind of put like a bug in like my, my head because the system is going to be completely different if that happens. And I think people think diseases like chronic diseases are bad now. If that happens, that's it's going to triple, quadruple. Because I think that so many people have distrust now about agriculture industry, about how people are. People don't even believe there's so many chickens and turkeys available now. We've been eating these things for years. Well, people have been eating these things for years. It's like, is are we really eating like real chicken and turkey? Is 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 it pumped with any steroids or? Like, what's inside of this food that I'm really eating? And I think that's going to build a whole nother issue of, of problems. You got to ask where your food comes from. You got to, that's why it's good to know your farmer. Right. 
you got to answer your food comes from and if you're able to grow your own food and let me tell you what COVID has has done you can't even hardly get any lumber now people are like making turning their front yards their backyards into growing spaces mm -hmm. you know last year my, my email and phone was off the hook because people want to know what you know what they can grow they're tearing up their front yards front lawns backyards uh, terraces people are growing food on terraces on windowsills because they know to fight any sort of disease you got to eat well you got to eat you you got to eat well and so all of a sudden it's starting to click on people's head it's like I got to make sure that I'm eating well to prevent any sort of illnesses and so again the focus on this pandemic has really been on food because people who never thought that they would lose a job or be sick are now getting their food from food pantries and soup kits and food lines they're seeing how important food is to the body and how important food is going to be to prevent illnesses because this COVID virus is not going to be the last and so we have to think about we have to just think about the whole system globally and that locally because what this virus has shown us it is not affecting it doesn't know the color of your skin how much money you make you know where you live it, it and, and yeah. it, it's effect it's a global you know pandemic and so what we have to think about is like how do we consciously think about the impact that we're all having on this planet because me it's like mother nature saying you're not you're not taking care of us you know you're not you're not doing well on this planet yeah. and so how do we how do we get back to thinking about ways that we treat the planet the one planet that we have you know for me I mean that's how I look at it as a farmer you know I look at it as a farmer when I'm out in the field you know I'm thinking about being a steward of the land giving as much respect and nourishment to the land as I can um, praying to the ancestors each and every day for life allow me to be in this land to, to, to put my hands in the soil to give it the attention of being a steward of the land and making sure that I'm growing food that is healing and that food is going back into the people that need it the most that's how I look at it, you know, as a gift of, of land stewardship. Not like I'm owning something, I'm trying to make money and stuff like that, but looking at me growing food as a gift that has been given to me so that I can grow the food that is nourishing to the people in my community that need it the most. So do you feel like this is like your calling? Like this is something that you... Without a doubt, it's my calling. Without, without, without a doubt. Without a doubt. You know, there's a path that, you know, some of us, or there's a path that is made for some of us, made for all of us, and it's those that listen to the path and those that see it but are afraid to venture out into that path. I mean, I, my job was a physical therapist. I did that for 37 and a half years, loved what I did, and never thought that at the age of 60 that I would give it all away and go into farming full time. And so for me, it's definitely been a journey. Um, I wouldn't change anything for the world. For for the world, 
Um, and like I said, I become very more spiritual as I become more close to the land and um, looking at it in a holistic way of nourishing the land and um, paying homage to the land and the ancestors each and every day when I'm out there. Even in my community garden in the Bronx, uh, right now, before I came on the call, I was in um, my community garden across the street, um, you know, turning the soil. And as I'm turning the soil, you know, just giving thanks while, while I'm in that soil, just, just turning it and, and just being um, privileged to be able to, to put my hands in the soil. So that's how I look at it. Well, Karen, I think your work is is so important in, in highlighting, you know, the challenges that, you know, not not only the challenges in the agriculture and food system, but also, you know, what you know what we've been dealing with, the plight that we've been having on our backs for years. I love your energy. I love your spirit. Like I said, I th you should have. I think you should have run for office or something because your your ideas are it's what needed to be implemented. But I like I said, awesome. I want to come and visit your farm when it's safe to do so. And, you know, can you give everybody your social media, website, how yeah. people can get in contact with you, all that good stuff? Yeah, so I'm on Facebook, Karen Young Washington. Hit me up there. I also have a website, KarenTheFarmer.com. Mm -hmm. So it's KarenTheFarmer, one word, dot com. Um, my farm is Rise and Root. Rise, R-I-S-E, and Root. R O O T farm uh, dot com. You can and then I have I'm a, uh, Instagram and um, Twitter car washer K A R W A S H E R car washer. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm there. I'm reachable. Um, but thank you so much for allowing me to be with you to speak to your audience. It's been great. And yes, you are welcome to my farm when it's safe and also my community garden in the Bronx when it's safe. You have uh, open invitation. Thank you. I appreciate that. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Miss Karen Washington. She's on fire. She's laying the groundwork on how we can not stop complaining, but we can overcome a lot of issues that we have in fighting chronic diseases, fighting chronic racism, systemic racism as well, and just live a more prosperous, healthier life. This is the Do Something Good Today podcast brought to you by Everybody's Juice. Thank you so much, and you all have a great day.